Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Kathy Kay, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Wednesday, February 12, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are on page 20, the paragraph that begins, Moderate Drinkers Have Little Trouble. Today's readers are Andy on the 12 Steps, Lauren on the 12 Traditions, and reading our texts are Sally, Helena, Penny C., and Michelle. The reference number for yesterday, uh, Tuesday, February 11th, is 5906. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry the message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Andy to read the 12 steps. Hi, this is Andy from New York for the 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over foods that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we, kept, we tried to carry this message to food addicts and compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Andy. Um, I will now ask Lauren to read the 12 traditions. Thank thank you. Lauren recovered from Pittsburgh. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be anonymous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized. 
we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. In 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. Thank you, Lauren. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your sharing to approximately three minutes. Signalness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year, and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that you share directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. Um, to share, press star one to unmute. Once you're done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we are going to resume our reading on, uh, in the big book on page 20. We are going to backtrack to the paragraph that begins, Moderate Drinkers Have Little Trouble. And we're going to read through the paragraph that begins, But What About the Real Alcoholic? And um, I'm going to ask uh, that we comment only on the last paragraph. We're reading the two prior just to set the context. And um, I'm going to ask Sally to begin reading. Thank you, Cass. Good morning, A Vision for You. It's Sally, recovered compulsive overeater in South Jersey. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption. Once he starts to drink, so when I see this word control in the middle of this uh, paragraph here, he begins to lose all control. I just want to speak to that word because that is my feeling is the definitive point for the hard, for the real alcoholic, not the hard, because they can still stop short. On page 30 and 31, the word control is used seven or eight times in the process of reading those two pages. I'm going to just read the bottom of page 31. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. And that's really the bottom line for me. That's what really separates the moderates from the hard, from the real alcoholic. And the same for, for the eating, the compulsive overeater. At some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. It's amazing. For me, my control stopped 
probably somewhere around age 14. Um, I know others probably can give a different start date. But the bottom line is I couldn't stay stopped. I could start a fast for a lot of years. I could fast. I fasted as much as 40 days. I could get on that train on Monday or a Wednesday. And that's what it felt like. You were catching a train, the fasting train. And I could get on that fast for three days or a week or 10 days, all the way up to 40 days. But once I started eating, I was back in this out-of-control stage of eating. And it was like that for me a lot of years. The the binge uh, and the fast cycle was many, many years of my life. And so with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Sally. Who would like to share on this paragraph? Yeah, I'm sorry, who would like to share on this paragraph? Yael. Yael? Okay, go ahead, Yael. Thank you. I apologize for the background noise, so I will be brief. Uh, what struck me with also the word control is that as life progressed and situations became more complex and more, there were more things that I couldn't control more people in my life that I couldn't control, the more the obsession and the food habits were controlling me, kind of like inversely proportional. Um, so with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Yael. Who else would like to share? Lorna. Go ahead, Lauren. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. This part in the book is, is helpful to somebody like me to identify what I am. There are three categories. Am I a moderate eater? Did I know people like that? I did. I wrote about that. I was not a moderate eater, but I knew people who could stop, who could put the food down. I also knew people who were hard eaters, who could, who could win successfully at those weight loss programs who could just put down cheese and lose weight and and not want to compulsively binge on cheese, you know? Um, who do, I know people who did a geographical cure. They went to California and, and adopted a healthier lifestyle. I could not be one of those people. I believe I was born a compulsive overeater, and I developed into what I became possibly through time. But I believe I was born with the allergy. And there were times I was able to to moderate my eating, but I, I believe I was born a compulsive overeater. And I'm a real compulsive overeater, meaning I identify with this paragraph, meaning I may have started off as a moderate eater. I eventually became a hard eater, but at some stage of my career, I lost all control of the first bite once I started. And whenever I picked up that that food, I never knew where it would take me. I couldn't predict what time the clock would read when I would be finished eating. I couldn't predict what my plans would be tomorrow because most likely they would be canceled. And a question I ask myself is, can I stay stopped on my own like a moderate or a hard drink or a hard eater can? Am I like those people? Am I physically a real compulsive overeater? Meaning, is there some physiological difference inherent in my body that will always be present that my mom does not have genetically? And my dad does not have genetically. And uh, with that, I will pass. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Lauren. Who else would like to share on this? This is Janice. Go ahead, Janice. Well, thank you, Kathy. Good morning. Um, my name is Janice, and I am a compulsive overeater, a real one, a real compulsive overeater. And, you know, we talked about the word control, and that's the, that's, 
that's half of my problem. And so this this um, particular paragraph, Bill's painting a picture of my disease that I have. I have a twofold disease: the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. This is a very clear-cut picture of the allergy, which is the physical part of my disease. It's only one part, but it's an important part because I tried for decades to have the power. We talked about control, beautiful word, same thing, power. I thought I had the power in some way with someone to someday get that power back, get that control back that I can eat certain substances. And it wouldn't create a phenomenon of craving. This is what it means. This is what it means to me today is I have an allergy of the body, and I'm always going to have the allergy of the body. Even in abstinence, it's not set up, but I still have it whether I'm recovered or not. Um, because of the obsession being removed, I don't, you know, it doesn't set up the allergy because I do not pick it up. You know, whatever substance went into my body is I chose to do that. That was my choice because, and then when and it wasn't, and then I had no choice <laughs> when, when I, when I didn't want to, because I didn't have the power. So you see, it really brings out the allergy of the body here that, um, that once I pick it up, it starts the phenomenon of craving. And my disease is not just physical, but this is what the picture is showing us. Now, if I want to um, self-diagnose myself, clear. Um, it was mentioned a page, and I have another page. We have another page, page 44, that very first paragraph where we can self-diagnose. Well, maybe you don't have this, and maybe you, you, you know, if you have half of the problem and you don't have two, you know, two parts, maybe you're not. I mean, we don't know. We, you, we only know. I only know who I am, and I am a real compulsive overeater because I have the two components. Um, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. Who else would like to share? Monica. Go ahead, Monica. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica, and I am a real compulsive overeater. <laughs> so here we are, and there is a solution in the big book here, and and uh, uh, we are being given information here to help us identify, to help me identify, am I a real alcoholic? Am I a real alcoholic? So they've given us three classifications, and it's up to me. I have to identify. You know, no one else can do this but for me, but me, and it's not going to do any good for me if anybody else does it for me because I won't like that. So what about the real alcoholic? Am I a real alcoholic? So the big book's helping me to identify this. And it says, you know, well, we might have started off as a moderate drinker and, you know, progressed. But have we progressed to the real alcoholic? where we don't have any control. They're really talking about powerlessness here. You know, am I powerless over this disease? And as been previously said, you know, our disease is uh, a physical aspect of the disease, which is the allergy that when I pick up some binge food, I cannot stop eating once I've picked it up because I set off the craving, the phenomenon of craving. And then the obsession of the mind, I'm powerless over that because I can put the food down, but then I can't keep it down because my mind keeps telling me it's okay to pick up again. It'll be different this time. I'll be able to control it this time. There's that word control again. And what's the real thing here is, no, I cannot. I am powerless. And then also, I'm very powerless and with over this is that, you know, my will, the unmanageability part of this disease. You know, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Again, no control. I am powerless. And if I am, if I can identify with all these things, 
I might be a real compulsive overeater. And you know what? It's not my fault. For some reason, I have this disease. It's not my fault. But I do have a responsibility. And here in the big book, we're being given um, help here in identifying if we are a real compulsive overeater or not. And if I say yes, then yes, I am. It's not my fault, but it's a fact. And Monica, what are you going to do about it? And this chapter here is going to give me a solution to this powerless disease that I have. And that gives me great hope. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Monica. I'd like to take a turn. This is Kathy, uh, a recovered compulsive overeater. And um, it took me many read-throughs of this section of the book and chapter to really grasp that I am a real compulsive overeater. And um, I just want to mention that um, I was someone who never had a lot of weight to lose, so I just assumed I must be a moderate eater. Um, uh, I must not be a a real compulsive overeater because uh, whatever this problem is I have, it did not um, put... Uh, 100 pounds on me. Um, And so it took me many years uh, of slipping and sliding and doing the step work um, and finally getting to the point where I could be truthful and honest with myself and see that, in fact, I had absolutely no control um, when I took that first bite. Um, and as much as I wanted to believe that my disease was not of the serious kind, I had to finally accept that, in fact, it was. Um, And I have to say that um, when I finally accepted my powerlessness and could identify as a real compulsive overeater, Um, what I needed to do in order to live in recovery um, became uh, much clearer to me, and I wanted to do it. Um, So it just reminds me of how critical it is to accept our powerlessness. And for some of us, it takes longer than others, um, depending on our history and how we self-diagnose ourselves. Um, And with that, I pass. Does anyone else want to comment on this paragraph? Um, My name is Phyllis. I'm a compulsive overeater. And when I came into program, I knew that I did not have to take a test to find out if I, in fact, was a compulsive overeater because I never was a person who could take it or leave, who could start eating uh, and then put the food down. And it mentions here if there's a specific reason, perhaps they can stop, you know, the compulsive eating. And I can remember before I came to program, my mother was in her 90s pleading with me to stop destroying myself with the food. And I, I just could not, and I was not ready to listen to her or anyone, I didn't even care at that time if I got diabetes, even though certain doctors had told me that I was a very good candidate for it. And um, where it tells you, you know, that at at a certain stage, you know, as a compulsive overeater, we just lose control. And uh, for me there was so much denial going on that I didn't even realize how, how this was happening to me and how much, uh, and how the pounds were coming on quicker and quicker. So therefore I am grateful that there is a big book with a solution that I can live with. And the fact that I have learned that I do have an allergy which sets off the craving cycles, particularly with sugar, and then I have to monitor that all the time. 
Thank you. Thank you, Phyllis. Let's move on. Helena, would you read the next paragraph for us? Press star one to unmute. Are you there, Helena? Uh, Penny C., could you read for us? Penny C. here, um, compulsive overeater recovered in Massachusetts. Um, here is the fellow, correct? Yes. Here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around, yet early the next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedatives, and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. Wow, this is is really a lot lot to... um, to um, think about and, and, and comment on, um, you know, that the, the idea that, um, you know, he often possesses special ability, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. You know, I, I know in my own situation and I've, I've heard others who will tell us about having, you know, a big job opportunity coming up or, you know, some some social situation that's going to advance them socially or professionally, and and they binge. They binge the night before or the whole day before and then can't make it to that meeting in the morning. And there's many other things in this long paragraph that I relate to. So, you know, I know, I know this is just proving to me when I relate to not every single sentence in this paragraph, but to so much that makes me no different from the alcoholic as a compulsive overeater. I did so many of these same things with the food. And, um, you know, thank goodness that, that you know, I, I had that spiritual awakening and personality change, and today I, I'm able to be, uh, you know, uh, show up, show up for life, show up for my family and friends. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Who would like this, to share? This is Larry. Lena. Okay, Tim. Larry and then Helena. Go ahead, Larry. You know- you know what, Helena, Helena was in there first, and I trampled all over her. So, Helena, why don't you go first, and I'll go after you. How about that? Okay, thanks, Larry. Go ahead, Helena. Good, 
This is Helena, and I did try unmuting numerous times, but it wouldn't let me. So thank okay. you. Thank you for so smoothly going on with it. Um, I am just, I used to read this paragraph and not identify one little bit. And now I can see myself in many, not in everything, but in many things. I love this. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. I thought of myself as a very honest person, someone who was a lot of fun, someone who took a lot of risks, and um, someone who would never harm anyone else. And yet, I would steal my roommate's food. I would be staying at some kind person's home who had offered to let me stay there overnight, for instance, when I was in nursing school and needed to be close to the hospital because I was on call. And then I do remember one time getting a call to come to the hospital in the middle of the night for um, a training purpose and being so afraid that I opened up my host's refrigerator at midnight and just started binging on her food. I think of so many times that I have been dangerously, maybe not dangerously, but definitely antisocial. I've gone to parties and once I started eating the food, I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave the spread. I would just stay there and eat rather than talk to people. I think of all the times that uh, people would say to me that I was such a neat person, that I identified so much with, for instance, Bill W. getting on a motorcycle for a year and riding around the country. That was the kind of thing I would have liked to do and some of the kinds of things I did. And yet, I had to numb myself with this food because... I was living in fear and had no idea about it. I used to say jokingly, I have a lot of willpower regarding food. If you get between me and my food, you better watch out and you'll see what kind of willpower I have. And the one thing that I do also much identify with is he is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That was myself. When I was enraged, food would calm me down. Sometimes I would pitch a temper tantrum and then full of shame I would, I would binge and then I would be a quiet little lambkin who would do whatever anyone wanted. Um, this, um, it's amazing to me how this continued for so many years, um, how doctors tried to help, how my family tried to help, and I was beyond help. And the person that was the most puzzled was myself. Pass. Thank you, Helena. Go ahead, Larry. Hi, thanks so much. Larry, recovered compulsive reader from Chicago. Appreciate everyone being on the line. Appreciate your service, Kathy. Um, you know, identification is so very important. I see it now in a way differently than I did before. Years ago, I, I felt, all right, you know, let's get on with it already. I get it. I get it. You know, Give me, let, me, let me go out and make some amends or something. Let me do something. Just do it, you know. That never worked. Um, I had to fully concede to my innermost self who I was, and uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't want to do that so much. I just wanted to give me a track to run on, literally and figuratively, <laughs> you know. Give me something like that. But identification is critical. Otherwise, here's what will happen to you. At least that's been my experience. You will not take the steps. This this program is simple very simple, extraordinarily simple, but it is not easy. And most people, it's been my experience, and I was one of them for many years, will not take the steps. They will not take the steps, and thus they will not have a spiritual awakening, or maybe you might feel better referring to it as a complete and total overhaul, a complete personality change sufficient to arrest this disease. That was me. So identification is great. And what do I identify? There's so much in this chapter, one of the longest, excuse me, the paragraph, one of the longest. Um, I'll just focus on the Jekyll and Hyde aspect. I, I will say that when I first read this paragraph, one of the things I had underlined in red, it's amazing how strong the ego and the self-centeredness and selfishness is. It was for me. You know what I had underlined in red? Um, this part. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. I focused on that because that was just how deeply ingrained my, my self-centered and self-consciousness was versus being God-centered, that that is what jumped out at me off the page. And I said, yes, yes, indeed, 
I am special, aren't I? I? I have such great skills and aptitudes, and what a career I've got ahead of me uh, overlooking everything else. What I identify with today, you know, I'll, I'll say that, you know, the Jekyll and Hyde, yeah, the, he, he, uh, he is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That was written by Robert Louis Stevenson. It was, it was published in the 1800s. It's interesting to me, and the irony is not lost on me, that many of his biographers said that he was on cocaine when he, you know, well into his addiction when he wrote that book, that novella. But, um, you know, we're talking about kind of, a, you know, a split personality. Um, you know, no doubt that described me. When I picked up my substance, it owned me. I resembled my former self very little. And so not only was I physically sick, indeed, I was morally bankrupt to the very core of, of my being. And I, I'll give you one, just one example. You know, I remember one time when I was married many years ago, and I had in the morning, I was on my way to an appointment. This, this literally happened. It's amazing to share this. And I, I had had multiple breakfast sandwiches and multiple sugary, you know, salty, savory things. And I was in my car with every intention of just going to work. And I literally, like the Jekyll and Hyde, I picked up my cell phone. I called an airline. No bags. No thought a moment before doing this. And within an hour, I was on a flight to Las Vegas. That really happened. No bags. No explanation. Can you imagine a married guy with a child? One minute, I was heading to a business meeting. The next, I was on my cell phone booking a flight to Las Vegas. And I drove straight to O'Hare International Airport, boarded a plane about an hour later, and oblivion. You know, so somehow there is a suggestion in the story and, and its description that, you know, within the same body there exists more than one distinct personality. You know, what I just described to you, does that sound like a different personality? Yet I had a promising career. I was a good guy. I wore masks, you betcha. But in this case, there were two distinct personalities. And, and it really, you know, focuses on, you know, one good and the other bad. Complete opposite levels of morality. That was me. And I didn't mean to be that way. I just was vastly different in moral character from one situation to the next. And um, so identification, until I fully got that, I would never take the steps. I would just hang around the rooms and listen to very energetic, passionate, recovered people talk about it and think, and hang up the phone and say, ah, that was good. And then I go binge my brains out later. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Larry. Who else would like to share on this paragraph? This is Susan. Paula. May I share? Okay, I heard Hester. Uh, Susan, Paula, Esther, were there others? Kim. Kim. Stella. Stella. Anyone else? Okay, so let's... Tara. Leah. <laughs> oh, Tara and Leah. Okay, let me run through the list. Susan, Paula, <clears throat> Esther, Kim, Bella, Tara, and Leah. Go ahead, Susan. Hi, Susan B. in Florida, uh, recovered from this deadly disease one day at a time. Um, <clears throat> this is a profound paragraph for me as well, I guess. Uh, well, anyway, uh, I always was amazed when I saw people who looked like they had this disease who were very, very successful. And I always thought, how do they function? How do they function at such a high level? And clear, it seemed to me, but maybe they weren't uh, like me. And um, many decades ago, I actually had a job as a casting director for commercials, and I would get samples of the food for what I was doing, and I would shove them in the drawer. When I hearing this paragraph made me remember this so vividly, I would have them in my drawer because I was always wearing like a muumu, and um, this was before I found um, the pro this program, and I would stuff my face and I would do my job stoned. I was so stoned, you know, often, and so I never even thought about the fact it was stealing, but it it essentially was, and I also remember, you know. One day, for me as well, I 
until I started working the steps, I I now have 16 years back-to-back without a binge and, and one day at a time of abstinence, but I've been in this program since 1985. So before I really was willing to work the steps, I did not find the recovery that I have today where, where it really has been removed from me. But I remember um, I was after I found the program, I was in a relapse. I was in a horrible relapse. And my son means the world to me. And he was a little over one year old. Now he's 23. And I had gotten so stoned that I, pe- that I, I blacked out. I was I was just out. And apparently my ex-husband, who was my husband then, came in and he thought I was dead because my son was screaming, screaming, crying, and I was out. He was afraid to touch me because if I was dead, he thought they would, whatever, you know. So, but the point was... I was I had been in program and even then this personality change you know my son I I I just thought I was you know my to be a mother was the most important thing and it was a really life changing thing for me um and by the way I almost went to jail because of my disease because of making poor choices because the food made me so stoned that that I just had really really poor judgment and uh, so I can, you know, really, really relate to this paragraph. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much. And one more thing, I'm just so grateful that today I don't, I can, I can be a consistent person in my life, and basically the person that I more want to be. Not all the time, but most of the time. Thank you. With that, I pass. Thank you, Susan. Paula. Paula, press star one. Well, I will start again with thank you, Kathy. There's nothing like starting with gratitude. And uh, I am so grateful. You know, this is a long paragraph, and I know there is a long line. And I am grateful that I am in this line and in this vision for you. It says, there's a word here, yet let him drink for a day. It's such a short word, such a short word, three letters, even now. Even now, yet let him drink for one day. And he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. We say on, see on page 16, and I'll just read the one line, an alcoholic's in his cups and is an unlovely creature. To be antisocial. You know, we know what it means to be social. Having to do with people. Enjoying friendly companionship with others. Oh, none of that. Oh, none of that. So your horrible friend wants only you. You pick it up and you exclude the others. And then I want to go down. I want to move down because this is what this disease does. He uses his gifts to build up right outlook for his family and himself. Bright outlook. Oh, there you go. Now look clearly here. His family and himself. No man is an island. And then pulls the structure down on his head. Then, at that time, why the insanity of the disease? By a senseless series of sprees. And I'm just going to end there with the two fens. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it. And drunks, drink gets drunk all over again. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. With this disease, there is always a then until you pick up the steps. Thank you for allowing me to share, and with that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Esther. Hi, uh, this is Hester. Um, Until I came to OA, which was in my 50s, I didn't even understand what my problem was. Um, most of my life I had been thin. Uh, I have a twin sister. She was fat and I was thin. She was the one who got the lectures and I was encouraged to eat, to eat whenever and whatever I wanted. That's the message that I was, that I grew up with. Uh, it was ingrained in my mind. But nobody understood, and at least of all myself, how sick my eating patterns were. Um, I was binging on sugar all the time, every day. I can say that sometimes my calorie intake for the day was 40 to 50% sugar, and I didn't eat much food. 
which is really sick, and that's how I maintained my low weight. But it crept up over time. It did creep up. Um, and this, th- these were the seeds that I planted, um, and I, I didn't know how to control the, the weight that, that was creeping up, creeping up. It was only when I came to OA and I heard the message, as we just read, you know, what kind of eater I was, what what kind of addict I was. You know, I had my stashes all over the place, and, and, and you know, I had to have my fix every day. I couldn't go a day without a fix, and this was the beginning of my healing, and I'm just really very grateful to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Esther. Kim. Thanks, Kathy. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. He is a fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated, he ought to sleep the clock round. Yet early the next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. You know, I was one of those people that I really believed that if if no one saw me eat, then people wouldn't know I was fat. The fact that I'm wearing a size 24 jeans didn't matter. As long as they don't see me eating then they'll have no idea that I, that I eat like that. So I was someone who always ate alone. And one of the things I would do for my binges is I would go to go to three or four different grocery stores because I couldn't buy all my binge foods at one place because then someone would know I was binging. And I would come home and I'd have a coffee table and I would have one flavor of haagen and then peanut butter cookies and another flavor of haagen and then Doritos and another flavor of Ben & Jerry's and then I would have like a cheese danish and I would just go across one bite, one bite, one bite, one bite. And then when I could barely move, I'd put the, the ice cream in the refrigerator and I'd wait about a half hour, maybe I'd put sweats on, and then I would start all over again and all over again. And I would think, this is it. This is going to be my last binge, so I have to eat every bite because there's no way that I will ever eat after this. And then I'd wake up the next morning and I would have all these little, I mean, one of the other things I would do is I'd only eat the fun size candy, you know, candy queens or candy bars, because that way I'm only going to have one fun size. I'm not going to buy the king size candy bar. I'll buy a bag of those fun size, but I'm only going to have one. And then I'd eat the whole bag, and the next morning I'd be sitting there going through the, the, the wrappers. Okay, there's got to be one left. There's got to be one left. There's got to be one left. I mean, that is, that is what our mind does to us. You know, I'm, this is going to be the last binge. 11.59 on New Year's Eve, I'm going to stop eating. And then I will be okay. But yet we keep going and we keep going. And the other one I so hit is the liquor to quiet his nerves. That was always my intention. You don't understand. It's been such a stressful day. I just need to take that edge off. I need to just have one. Now, because the you know Oreos are you know two for five dollars, or there's a sale, I'll buy the whole bag. I'll buy extra. I'll buy the extra large Doritos. But my intention is only to quiet my nerves, only to give a little edge off, and it always turned into a binge, always, and it progressed more and more. So the binge that satisfied me two years ago did not satisfy me today. And I find for me, because of the way this allergy works, because I'm seeking that even comfort, and that first bite gives me that even comfort about five seconds. And two hours in, I'm still chasing what that first bite felt like. I'm still chasing the even comfort that I never get past that first 15 seconds. So this paragraph reminds me of who I am. I am someone who, when I pick up, I cannot reasonably predict how much I'm going to have. And I am someone that even if I have that willpower, even if I gave it up for Lent, even if I gave it up for Jan- you know, January 1st, within a couple weeks, that obsession of the mind is going to become so strong, the only thing that I think is going to quiet those nerves. So then he comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Welcome to the vicious cycle that is described in the doctor's opinion. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Bella. Yes. Um, good morning. Thank you, everybody, for every share that I heard. But um, I related very much to a, somebody, I don't remember with the name of the person, 
um, they said that they were in a thinner body. They were not obese, and so they didn't think they had a problem. I've been in OA for many, many, many years, probably close to 30 years, and it took me years to admit that I was a compulsive overeater. I thought I was just somebody with a terrible sweet tooth because I never needed to eat food. I never sat down to a meal. All I would do was snack all day long. I'd have coffee and cake, and I would bake fancy cakes, and I would, you know, devour them not right away and not in one day over a period of a week, but I was the one finishing them. And, And I just... In my head, I was not over, terribly overweight. I was 30, 35, maybe 40 pounds overweight. And it happened over a long period of time, so it didn't hit me in the face. And I just was in such denial that I, there was anything wrong with me other than that I had a terrible sweet tooth that I just went on and on. And because this disease is so progressive, I went from 30 to 40 pounds. And when I hit 50 pounds overweight, I got really scared. And I went on a diet. And I lost my weight, and of course I gained it back. And um, I never thought I was doing crazy things, so I really couldn't relate. I couldn't, instead of um, relating in, I sort of thought of the things that I didn't belong in there instead of seeing how I did belong. And then I was just, when I had lost my weight and I'm uh, um, recovering, thank God, Um, I was talking to one of my children, and she said to me, you don't remember the crazy things you did? I said, no, I never did anything crazy. She said to me, do you remember when I was little and I wanted some change to buy a snack, and you said go to my pocketbook and take some money? And I went there, and I saw three chocolate bars, and I said, oh, Ma, can I have a piece? And you said, no. And I said, why? You have three. And I said, because it's my food. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, one is for breakfast, one is for lunch, and one is for supper. It didn't dawn on me how crazy this was. I'm having three chocolate bars for my meals. That's going to be my food. And I was denying that I was a compulsive overeater. You know, and um, it's just, it was amazing, the crazy things I did. And I, I just, how in the world I could not realize what I was doing, and it was just unbelievable. I would have, when we would go on a road trip, I would have candy parties before we started. We, I'd go shopping for shopping bags full of food, and I have seven children. And so we, I bought shopping bags full, and I would be the one starting all the, the candies and tasting it first, and then we, I would distribute it. It was, if there was a holiday and, and we would have candies or cakes, I would put away stuff that I liked because, God forbid anybody should touch it, and I would lose out on it. I would feel devastated. I would go to a wedding, and I couldn't wait to get there to the schmork to see all the interesting things that they had. I mean, my life was so crazy, and I didn't even realize it. And I read the big book many times, and it didn't hit me until this morning. I feel like someone just lit a light bulb in my head when they said about how he was hiding bottles of liquor all over so nobody would find his whole stash. I was doing the same thing with snacks and sweets, and I did not realize it. And thank God, at this point, I am eating three meals a day with nothing in between, and I have not had sugar or flour in my body at least a year and a half. And I thank you all very much. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Bella. Tara. Tara, are you there? <clears throat> Tara, press door one. Hi, this is Tara in Florida. Go ahead. And uh, good morning. Um, let me make sure I have enough sound there. Um, I thank you all. <laughs> this is really amazing. I'm pretty new in OA, but I came actually to OA in 1986 um, because I had a problem of that I was so desperate from binging and um, just passing out that I um, actually started starving because that was the only way I could stop. I never could go on a diet ever. And that lasted for maybe six months, and I was just about to get married. I got married, went on my honeymoon, came back, and and I no longer could 
I um, starved for some reason. And so I started on back and I got a job in a bakery and I was back in the break room, you know, like sneaking back there every chance I could get and just gobbling down as fast as I could all the different pastries that were there. And um, that job lasted, I don't know, not very long. And then I got another job in a restaurant and they had a specialty, you know, that was flour-based and sugar. And I was eating off of other people's plates after they sent them back. I would, um, you know, every chance eat out the garbage, whatever, if I thought somebody, people weren't looking. And um, I just, I got more and gained weight. I, but I was like the person that was in a, in a dead panic about the weight. Um, and I then became willing to um, do the, the purging. And uh, so then I, I yo-yoed up and down. I would binge purge, binge purge for, for so many years. And um, then that luckily found a way and was referred to another organization where I was able to stop that cycle for about 20 more years. But actually, every time I had a big job or something, I would eat to calm my nerves, and I would somehow not purge it. So I returned to the original binging cycle, and uh, especially if I had had to really do my carpets, I knew I had to move so many things because I'm a, <laughs> kind of a hoarder also um, that I would I would go to the store and just buy loads of of um, barbecue chips, all kinds of things, um, treats, and I would just just get through the day somehow. I would get the energy to get through the day by eating high carb foods and. Um, Spent so you know many many years with that syndrome, and then talking Sorry, about it's been three minutes. Can oh, I thank up? you so much. I've been ba- I came back to o- OA um, just recently, and I was able to eat three meals a day, um, and leave out the sugar and the flour, and. I've never had this freedom in my life in, in, in 50 years. And so thank you all so much. Uh, and thank my higher power for, for bringing me home. Have thank a great day. Thanks, Tara. And Leia, you'll be our last share today. Well, thank you, Kathy. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for your service. Um, my name is Leia. I'm a real compulsive overeater who is recovered. Um you know, this lack of control here. Here's the fellow who's been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. I mean, it is puzzling. It puzzles other people. It puzzles, you know, it puzzled me. My big book uh, describes the disease as cunning, baffling, and powerful, this lack of control that I have. You know, there are two dimensions here being described in that previous paragraph. It's my allergy of the body. that When I take in my binge foods, um, there is a phenomenon of craving that is triggered. It is much like taking a match and throwing it into a bucket of gasoline. Whoosh! I am biologically mandated to continue to eat like an eating machine, and I cannot predict with any degree of certainty when I would stop, when that binge would end. And it was puzzling. Because I did have other things to do. <laughs> you know, I did have other responsibilities. But once I took that food in, it triggered a phenomenon of craving. And, of course, it goes on and says, you know, he often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. And he uses his gifts and then pulls the structure down on his head. I mean, there are a lot of consequences that uh, occurred due to my compulsive overeating. And these consequences were not really the issue, but they served as a wake-up call for me. They were the drama. They were not the cause. They were the symptoms. They were not the disease itself. 
the issue was the compulsive overeating, and the explanation for that was a physical allergy, a presence uh, of an allergy within me that resulted in that phenomenon of craving after I took in those substances. So allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. I mean, I am not stupid. I am bright. I'm good. (laughs) I have a good, decent memory. When I said I was not going to act like that anymore and eat like that anymore and lie like that anymore and be the Jekyll and Hyde that we read, I meant it. And then I ate again and again and again and again. That's what it means when we talk about real compulsive overeater, allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. With that, I pass. Thanks.